Today on Ag News Daily. Essentially, the science that generates um, DNA sequencing um, and looks at DNA sequences and makes sense of DNA sequences. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, how you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Fantastic. We've also got Delaney Howell on the podcast. Delaney, what's your day looking like? My day has been watching today's WASD report come out and then seeing the grains markets in particular react pretty favorably. Yeah, yeah. Big time bullish report on planted acreage and quarterly grain stocks. Well, QGS was interesting. Wasn't quite as bullish, but the trade definitely read the acreage number as the star of the show. Mm -hmm. Delaney, if you got those numbers handy, you want to fill our listeners in? Yeah, absolutely. So the big one here, the big kicker, I think, was definitely the corn numbers when it came to acreage. USDA said that for all purposes in 2020, they estimate that will plant about 92 million acres, which is up slightly from last year. I'm going to come back to that here in just a moment. Soybean acres came in at 83.8 million acres, and all wheat acres came in at about 44.3 million. The kicker, Mike, that I saw on Twitter reported by Reuters reporter Karen Braun is that in this acreage report, USDA put in a special note that said that to assist users with interpreting this planted acreage data, they wanted to make a note that this was collected from respondents between May 30th and June 16th. So then if you look at the chart they provided, they said that there's still about 2.2 million acres of corn left to be planted as of June 16th, 12 million acres of soybeans left to be planted as of June 16th. And from what I've been reading on Twitter, and I honestly, I trust Karen Braun's uh, reporting skills, it sounds like these two numbers were included in those 92 and 83.8 million acres respectively, meaning we could see at the end of the day, I think, even smaller acreage numbers. Exactly. That is definitely the highlight. So I went back through a couple of the other years, June planting or acreage, planted acreage reports. And at at least in recent history, there's been no other note like this, including last year, which of course was another historically late planted crop. And so yeah, to see that it's 92 million as the headline number, but of that 2.2 million wasn't yet in the ground by the time they were doing these surveys is definitely something else. I mean, so realistically, this could be a 90 million acre corn crop and, you know, a bean acreage could be in the 70 million acre range Mm -hmm. rather than 83.8. It's definitely interesting and it's going to kind of, I think, cast a long shadow over the rest of this marketing year while the trade still tries to get a handle on, okay, how big is this corn crop? Yeah, and I uh, I'd like to give a little special plug here. I don't I don't do this all the time, but uh, I recently started working for an ag marketing company. We don't do brokerage like you do there, at Mike, at uh, Zaner Group. We just do advisory services, and we put out our own survey where we survey our subscriber members. And I will say the numbers that we calculated for this go around showed us at 89.1 million acres of corn and 85.8 million acres of beans. So we were pretty spot on with what USDA. 
came in with for today and definitely significantly lower, especially on the core numbers than what the average trade estimate was guessing. Yeah, yep, definitely caught the uh, caught the trade by surprise. And we are certainly seeing that move to the upside. However, I was talking with Max Armstrong on Twitter earlier today about this rally, and we both thought this rally was somewhat muted, given the fact that really this was a three to five million acre miss by the trade. And I think what's happening is we've got a lot of bullish sentiment being generated by this light acreage number, but that it being offset at least somewhat by the quarterly grain stocks. So quarterly grain stocks for corn came in at 5.22 billion bushels. That is higher than any of the trade had estimated. Most folks had us in the fours. I believe there was one number, 5.1 billion bushels. Uh, A lot of folks had us at 4.9 billion. So at the end of the day, we've got more corn on hand than we had anticipated, which I think is what is kind of muting this rally. It's definitely indicative that demand was slow this past quarter. And I, you know, the key component of that in my mind is ethanol, ethanol grind slowing down so much. Um, Yeah. We did see a slightly smaller uh, quarterly grain stocks for soybeans. Beans stored were 1.39 billion bushels, down substantially from a year ago. And wheat was at 1.04 billion bushels, down just slightly from a year ago. And uh, so that is the new sentiment that the market will be trading. I think it has definitely turned a corner and a smaller acreage definitely, I think, pulls back the risk of a four plus billion bushel carryout for this year. So we should see that huge short position held by managed money start to lift itself in the corn side of things. Yeah. However, I would, uh, I mean, again, even if we do have smaller acreage numbers, I would caution that maybe we can't get too excited quite yet because we also saw yesterday's corn and soybean conditions report rise slightly week over week. And so NAS came out as of yesterday afternoon and said they estimated that about 73% of our corn crop was in good to excellent conditions as of Sunday, June 28th up about a percentage point from the previous week and well ahead of where we are usually for this time of year. Uh, They also estimated that about 4% of our corn crop nationally was silking, which is slightly ahead of last year and slightly behind of the five-year average. So definitely something to consider as well as it's still very early in the game here, but I've been hearing rumors of maybe a 180 national yield this year. Well, yeah. And if listeners want to get caught up on that discussion surrounding 180, check out yesterday's podcast. We talk about that figure with Matthew Bennett on the Market Mondays podcast from yesterday. But in the meantime, we've also got other news going on. Do you have any other thoughts on planted acreage, quarterly grain stocks or crop conditions? You know, I guess I have one other thought and I'm eager to hear what you have to say about this, Mike, because of that quote unquote special note that they put into this report. My question is, where the market's trading today on that special report thinking, oh, there's an extra 12 million acres that could come off soybeans? Or were they just trading on the fact that this number was so much below the average trade estimate in both corn and soybeans, arguably? Yeah, I think it was probably a combination of both. I think the headline figure, the the figure that drives the automated trading is the headline. So it's that 92 and that 83.8 is uh, what was being fed into the algorithms that a lot of these managed money uh, fund programs use. However, I think some of the other traders, I mean, the, the humans were able to read that special note. They're 
contemplating what this might mean for the corn crop, I think we're going to see a lot of variability on balance sheets published throughout the rest of the growing season. And I think particularly on the soybean side, the connections to growers are going to be hugely important. Um, if you're a corn grower, soybean grower, you know, cotton also saw a big drop in acreage. Um, you know, what are you seeing in your neighborhood? What are your neighbors doing? What was the transition? I think that kind of information is going to help shape pricing uh, for the rest of the season because we still have uncertainty, which makes the algorithms not uh, do so well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, we don't need an algorithm to know that COVID is a serious issue. I've got two COVID stories I want to hit right off the top, both from China, both relating to meat imports. So earlier today, China banned meat exported by four of the largest Dutch slaughterhouses. Um, They didn't give a reason for this, uh, but all of these slaughterhouses have recently been uh, subject to COVID outbreaks. So that is the guess that China is still cracking down on COVID outbreaks around the world. And these Dutch plants have seen it. And so they have blocked exports from the Netherlands. And the Netherlands is Europe's largest leading pork exporter. So this could be a, a, a boon to American exporters because China hasn't yet targeted any U.S. slaughter plants, but they have come over to the Western Hemisphere and they targeted three uh, processing plants down in Brazil. Um, the General Administration of Customs, this is kind of a weirder story. They banned the import of meat from three plants in Brazil because they are scared of the coronavirus. However, the Chinese Ministry of, of Imports did not name which companies are subject to this decision, and they haven't given a formal reason for the suspensions. So we know that three plants aren't going to be allowed to export to China. We don't know which three, and we don't even know which particular meat they are targeting. So it's interesting. That is strange. Yeah. Uh, JBS did say uh, on a the database that uh, they've got a chicken plant in Paso Fundo that has been banned from exporting poultry. But that's kind of the only thing we know. Hmm, right. Okay. Yeah, very bizarre. Well, it is China, so I guess, eh, you know. Yeah, always the wild card. Ashton, what are you watching today? Well, today I am keeping an eye out on the red flag warning that has been issued to parts of the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles due to dangerously high fire conditions. Now, being out here, we have high temperatures, really strong wind gusts coming out of the southwest, and relative humidity as low as 8% because it's super dry out here, which is creating pretty ideal conditions for wildfires to start out here on the flatlands. So I'm keeping an eye out on that weather and hoping that our farmers and ranchers out here continue to stay safe and watch that as well. Absolutely. I wonder if fire risk is raised as the harvest is going on. I mean, you've got heavy machinery with, you know, potential sparking moving through super dry wheat fields in 8% humidity. Be careful out there, folks. Absolutely. I've seen a couple of my friends who are farmers um, up here and in Eastern Colorado, they've had a couple of issues um, with their machines starting fires. So I sure hope that everybody is staying safe and careful these days. For sure. Jelani, what else are you watching? Well, I was definitely, a lot of the my day was sticking up today of watching the WASD, but I also saw that we have kind of another peg going on in the Roundup lawsuits. I know you reported last week, Mike, that they've essentially, Monsanto's essentially 
not Monsanto. They're not Monsanto anymore. Bayer is basically volunteered to do some sort of study and whatever they find, they find. But we also continue to see things moving forward on the lawsuit front. And we saw a federal judge has a hearing set for July 23rd to discuss and decide whether another class action lawsuit against Roundup will be able to move forward. This is about a $10 billion plus settlement that was announced just last week. And the proposed class could include people who have been exposed to Roundup, but may or may not have been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I don't know how they determine that. If you don't have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you don't have cancer, I don't quite understand how you can be part of a settlement lawsuit. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know how that works either. Another legal question. Uh, we, we really need to have like somebody that just comes on once a week and answers all our legal questions because I feel like there's so many all the time. I feel like we've got a solution to this. Ashton, your new assignment is going to law school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll get right on that. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That, you know, we don't ask a lot of our interns here. You know, it's just, just a little bit there. If you just would jump on that and just, you know, enroll in, get accepted to, and then graduate from law school with an emphasis in ag law, you know, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Delaney, Ashton, you two coffee drinkers? Um, no, I'm not. I totally oh. am. <laughs> All right. Well, this has some, might have an impact for you because Delaney, do you drink fancy coffee? Uh, yeah, I drink stuff that doesn't taste like coffee. Like soda? Like, well, I mean, so if I go to Starbucks or Dunkin', I'm going to get something that has the least amount of coffee and the most amount of other crap put in it. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, I, you might be impacted by this then. So Costa Rica is a coffee growing Mecca. It's not a huge exporter. They export around a million uh, bags of coffee. And those bags are 132 pounds, uh, which is just kind of a drop in the bucket. However, they are known for their Arabica, Arabica, Arabica mm-hmm. beans. I, I drink Folgers. Arabica. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Arabica, whatever. Mine comes, you know, ground up in a plastic tub. Um, and they're it's gourmet beans from Costa Rica. And the Costa Rican coffee growers were expecting a bumper crop this year. However, most of that coffee looks like it is going to rot on the bush because of travel restrictions impeding their ability to get labor to harvest the crop. Mm-hmm. This is a theme we've seen throughout the year in agriculture. We saw it in Great Britain. We saw it in Germany with their asparagus crop. We're hearing about challenges facing producers in America, particularly of specialty crops, as these uh, har- uh, travel restrictions really slow down movement. But Central America, the latest to be impacted by this because their Nicaraguan and Panamanian mm-hmm. field labor can't get to the country to pick the coffee. So we might see a bump up in gourmet coffee pricing. Yeah. So when I was in Costa Rica two years ago now, I suppose, two years ago in May, um, I can't remember the number, but it was, uh, um, I want to say like 80 or 90 percent of the Costa Rican coffee crop is picked by especially Nicaraguan immigrant or labor workers. Well, they can't cross the border, it sounds like. So it's going to be a struggle down there. Do we have any other stories to get to before we talk markets? Let's do it. All right, folks. Well, we did have a rally in the markets today. 
Corn, beans, and wheat all higher. July corn up 11 and three quarter cents at 338 even. December up 15 and a quarter. Closed the day at 350 on the nose. Soybeans July up 16 and a half cents at 883 even. November up 20 and a quarter cents to close at 881 and three quarters. Chicago wheat also July up four and a half cents at 490. December up six and a quarter. Closed at 499 and three quarters. Looking at the livestock market, closed lower on the day. August down 20 cents at 96, 27.50. October down 32 and a half, finishing at 99.72.50. Feeder cattle also down on the day. The August was off 65 cents at 132.85. September down 90, closed 133.37.50. Lean hogs see some mixed trade today. The July down 20 cents at 45.17 half. The August up 57.50 at 49.02.50. And over in the dairy market, class three milk rally continues. June up three cents at 20.97. The July up another 17 cents, closing the day at 22. 37. Ashton, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for Hashtag Tech Tuesday. Today, we are talking to a co-founder of Trace Genomics to talk about what they do with soil sampling. Today on the podcast, we have co-founder of Trace Genomics, Purnima Paramaswaran. And uh, Purnima, you sound like a very interesting person. I read a little bit about you on the Trace Genomics website. So before we get into discussing Trace Genomics, why don't you give our listeners your background in agriculture and innovation? Sure. Um, so I, my background is really in the science and technology that's fueling and bringing the innovation that we're working on at Trace to agriculture. So I have a uh, PhD in microbiology and in genomics, which is essentially the science that generates uh, DNA sequencing um, and looks at DNA sequences and makes sense of DNA sequences using, um, using a lot of data analytics. My PhD was in that field, um, and I also did a postdoc uh, working with the Ministry of Health in Nicaragua with um, UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. And throughout my PhD and my postdoc, really focused on answering the question, what can DNA sequencing and genomics bring in helping us understand this world of microbes that is around us? Everything from soil to air to water to food Every, everything contains millions of microbes, soil itself, right? You hear um, the stat being talked about a lot, which is every tablespoon of soil contains billions of microorganisms in it. So when we're farming for crops, we're farming the soil as much as we're farming plants. And given that there is so much biology, so much microbiology in the soil, for me, I was naturally very much um, very attracted to helping our farmers in agriculture um, make sense of what is there in their soil from that lens of biology, from that lens of microbes in the soil. And so the technology um, that we're working on at Trace is really combining soil science, combines genomics, combines the power of data analytics to help our farmers make sense of what is there in their soil so that they can farm healthier, more resilient crops. Well, that is such an interesting background. And I 
like that you make the point about soil being a dynamic medium and, you know, having all of these little pieces, little organisms moving and breathing and changing the chemistry of the soil. But when you look at trace genomics, what was the thought process behind starting a company like this, taking that background you had and then implementing a new company? Yeah, so if you go back to the very first days or weeks, um, even before we started Trace Genomics, one of the biggest asks that we heard when um, when we went out and spoke with with our customers, the growers um, in and around Salinas and Napa and Sonoma, the biggest need that they voiced and shared with us was they wanted help understanding their soil. They wanted help understanding what their disease risk was in their field before they went in to make planting decisions. They wanted um, the ability to understand what is the fertility, um, what is the fertility in their soil look like, what are the beneficials in their soil, what biologicals do they need to be applying to their soil, what management practices should they be considering based off of actual measured soil data. Um, what we also heard from them was that they have access to all of this information and technology above ground, imagery, weather, including moisture, rainfall, climate, all of that. Um, they, yeah, they had very little access to consumable information from the soil other than soil chemistry. There was very little that was known about soil biology and almost nothing that was available for them to make decisions at the farm gate. So that's really why we started Trace, so that we could take this technology that existed in academic institutions and in large R&D labs, which is essentially this power of genomics combined with soil science, combined with um, data analytics, and build a company on that platform, um, around that platform, where we every soil sample that comes into trace, we are creating indicators around specific diseases that are of interest to our customers. We, for example, create a list of indicators quantitate, um, a quantitative list of indicators around diseases for leafy greens, if that's what our customers are interested in, or for corn and soy, if that's what our customers are interested in. We combine disease risk indicators also with nutrient cycling indicators. There's all of these beneficial microbes in the soil that help make nitrogen, phosphorus more available to plants. And until we started Trace, there was nobody else out um, offering growers and their agronomists the ability to really quantitate the nutrient cycling potential of their soil. Um, and now with our acquisition of um, soil assets from Winfield, we are also able to measure soil chemistry profiles like pH, phosphates, nitrates, et cetera, that a grower wants to um, wants to be able to use to make the right decisions around fertilizer optimization. So we provide all of this data to our customers via our web portal in a very consumable manner, um, essentially as a diagnostic report of their acres before they go in to make critical planting decisions or before they go in to make critical decisions around what inputs they should be purchasing for their fields. 
So you make an interesting point there. You said that you, so essentially, I just, I just want to confirm this. Growers, agronomists, farmers, whomever, they send in their soil and you work with them to provide solutions for their soil with whatever crop that they are looking to plant. Is that correct? So our web portal actually delivers a report of soil biology and soil chemistry profiles to them. The disease indicators, for example, if you take fusarium wilt in lettuce, or if you take sudden soybean death um, syndrome in soybeans, charcoal rot, gosses wilt, um, and all of those diseases that are affecting corn and soy, our customers, the agronomists and their growers typically already know what management practices or varietals or hybrids that they would implement or choose if the disease risk was high for those diseases. We're not making those recommendations. All we're helping our customers do for the disease component is surfacing a quantitative indicator so that um, they can make data-driven decisions for disease uh, risk mitigation. The other pieces around nutrient cycling and um, soil chemistry Something very similar, which is we know, for example, there's nitrification inhibitors or phosphorylizers that are available in the market. These are biological solutions that are applied to help plants become more efficient at taking uh, at taking up nutrients from the soil. And based on our reports for those indicators, as well as based on our reports for soil chemistry indicators, our customers make. Um, the best decisions, data-driven decisions for fertilizer and biological applications. I would almost, um, another way to really think about what we do is we are the engine powering agronomic decisions, data-driven agronomy, data-driven product placement for our customers. And when you look at the products that you serve, you've mentioned all of these different pieces you do, but what specific industries do you serve? Are you serving conventional crops? Are you serving specialty crops? A combination of both? Yeah. So the power of the platform, the power of the technology is it can serve many, many, many different types of crops. We started with leafy greens and berries in 2016 when we launched our first product. And we very quickly expanded to serve over two dozen crops. And now we're actually going deeper in a handful of crops, like specifically corn and soy, a lot of acres, um, a lot of need for our technology in those specific crops. Um, And there's also a handful of other specialty crops that we're focused on. For example, these could include leafy greens. um, These include some of the permanent crops like nuts, fruit trees. Grapes, another example, uh, we serve also a couple of different types of vegetables that are grown in rotation with leafy greens. Um, and so, yeah, we because we're really focused on digitizing soil and soil can be used to grow many different types of crops, we come in with data analytics to really surface the specific diseases in a, in a crop-specific manner. That's all data analysis. That's all software. So once the soil data is digitized, it makes it very easy for us to serve dozens of crops with the same underlying technology. The um, in terms of 
type of agriculture, we have customers who are organic farmers. We have customers who are doing conventional agriculture. We have customers who are doing regenerative agriculture. We have customers who are doing intensive cropping practices. We have other customers who are growing many, many different varieties of crops, even on the same acre. Um, Because we are not providing specific recommendations, the technology and the platform can be used to drive decisions under many different agricultural frameworks. So I want to talk about the process of customers sending in their soil samples. Excuse me, I stumbled on my words there, but can you just take us through from collecting those soil samples and customers actually submitting them to your facility or how that works? Yeah, so when customers sign up, sign up with us, um, we typically, it typically follows two paths, two more paths. One is where they have an existing soil sampling framework. They may already be doing grid sampling. They may already be doing zone-based sampling. We plug and play into those sampling methodologies that they have um, already established on their farm. In the other scenario, for example, if we were working with um, customers who are doing field trials, replicated plot trials, or customers who don't really have a um, sampling plan already established, we we do have agronomists on staff who can really work very closely with them to develop that sampling plan. All righty. And I just have one more question before we let you go. How can our audience, our listeners, get in touch with Trace Genomics? And do you guys have any social media or anything that they can follow you guys on? Yes, we're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We're also on on Facebook and Instagram. And our handle is Trace Genomics at um, our, yeah, your listeners, we would certainly love to hear from them. Um, we'd love for them to follow us on all of these social media platforms. Um, they can get in touch with us uh, by emailing support at tracegenomics.com and uh, would be happy to answer any questions from your listeners. Well, thanks again, Fornima, for taking the time out of your day to come up and talk to us about Trace Genomics. Absolutely, my pleasure. Again, a big thank you to Pornima. It was very interesting to learn more about soil sampling and what trace genomics does for farmers, growers, agronomists, what have you. But it was definitely an interesting conversation, but kind of hard to wrap my head around with all the microbes and what have you going on in the soil. Yes, very, very cool stuff. Fascinating world beneath our feet. And it's a fascinating world in agriculture, which we cover every day on the podcast. Folks, check out the website at agnewsdaily.com to get caught up on past episodes and connect with other podcasts in the Global Ag Network. And as always, hit us up on social media. Find us at Ag News Daily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.